Hello and welcome to episode 291 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. It was great to meet so many of you at CrimeCon in London last week. And I'll stop with the pictures now, I promise, okay? Don't forget, I am appearing in Glasgow at the end of June and in London in August with Mike from Murder Mile and Paul from the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Tickets are just £12 and surprisingly, we aren't fully sold out yet. So please come and join us for what will be a great night. You can find tickets on all of my social accounts. Talking of Glasgow, that's where today's story comes from. And I think it's one of the strangest stories I've covered in almost six years of podcasting. But before we get to the story, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters at Patreon, especially the new members of our community. That's Karen Medcalf, Ian McCarran, and Sophie Bywater. Thank you so much for joining us. This podcast is sponsored by Ritual. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why especially when it comes to something we take every day. I think we can all agree on that. And Ritual's clean, vegan-friendly multivitamin is formulated with high-quality nutrients in bio-available forms your body can actually use. Ritual's multivitamins are designed to help fill common nutrient gaps in the diet, all in just two minty capsules a day. I've been taking Ritual's Men's 18 Plus Essential for the last couple of months now, And I feel great. No colds or other illnesses in that time. But for me, this is all about what is happening inside as it helps me keep healthy for the long term. And Ritual, a company whose values match mine, I trust as a partner to help me achieve this. These are supplements you can trust taking. And Ritual is offering you, my listener, 10% off your first three months when you visit ritual.com slash truecrime So start your ritual today. That is ritual.com slash truecrime. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. As you know, life can be overwhelming sometimes and many people are burnt out without even knowing it. Symptoms of this can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, attachment, fatigue and more. I know for me, I know I'm suffering when I just can't seem to get anything done and everything takes me forever to complete. Do you know that feeling? But therapy can help with this. It can help you see why struggling in your work life can cause you problems at home and with your relationships, and also, most importantly, help you find solutions to deal with it. So why not give therapy a chance to help you? BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And True Crime listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash truecrime. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash truecrime. Okay, so let's set some context for today's story with our guest of the month and year game. Top of the UK charts this week was Madonna with Sorry. <laughs> so much, so much I could say there. In the US, at number two was James Blunt with Your Beautiful, a legend on Twitter who doesn't take himself at all seriously if you don't follow him yet. And in Australia, 
The top album this week was Sing Alongs and Lullabies for the film Curious George by Jack Johnson. In the news this month at the Winter Olympics in Turin, Italy, Pavarotti sang Nessun Dorma in his last ever performance. At the BAFTAs, Brokeback Mountain was best film. Airline entrepreneur Freddie Laker died. And in UK True Crime News, we saw the Securitas Depot robbery. When around £53 million was stolen from a Securitas Depot in Kent. It was the largest cash robbery in British crime history. So did you guess the month and year? It was February 2006. Let's get on to today's story. It was a busy winter's evening in Glasgow. One of those special nights in the city when Rangers were playing in the Champions League against Villarreal. There'd been a real buzz around the city all day. To the southwest of the city on the road to Paisley is the district of Candonald. When we pick up the story just after 7pm on the 26th of February, some residents were already at the match but others were making their way there or picking up their children from a local martial arts class or shopping at the bustling local Morrisons. A local couple, 51-year-old Andrew Ramsey and 55-year-old Beverly Sinclair, left the Quo Vadis bar after a couple of drinks to head home to their terraced house just a few minutes walk away in Berry Nose Road. It was just a normal Wednesday and they were regulars in the pub where they'd been chatting to the locals about their weekend plans to go hill walking in Deeside. But they had unexpected visitors. As they arrived at their home, an unmarked black Honda Accord car stopped outside the house and two Ford Squad officers told accountant Andrew that they needed to question him at nearby Stewart Street Police Station. Beverly was told not to worry and to phone the police station at 11pm, four hours later, for an update. With that, she saw Andrew handcuffed, placed in the back seat, and the door was shut. As he was driven away, it was about 7.12pm by now. It didn't cross her mind that she would never see him again. His last words to Beverly were to call him a lawyer. Beverly was confused about what had happened and why Andrew had been taken away, as you would be. But at 11pm, as requested, she called the police station only to be told that Andrew was not there. And he hadn't been there all night. And they'd no record of the police officers who had been at her house. Beverly was confused. They'd known her and Andrew's name, and they were very clear that they were from the fraud squad. But it soon began to dawn on her that whoever had taken Andrew away that evening did not work for the police. So just who had taken him away on that winter's night? George Barnsley was a detective inspector at the time of the Strathclyde Serious Crime Squad. He explained to the Glasgow Times newspaper what happened next, saying, When Beverly phoned Stewart Street Police Office, that's when the alarm bell started ringing. The officers there would do a check and realise he was not there. They would also do checks with the police officers in Glasgow 
to see if they had Andrew. When that was a negative, we then realised that we had a big problem. Nobody had seen Andrew being taken except for Beverly, so clearly she was the person that detectives initially concentrated most of their efforts in talking to, along with house-to-house inquiries nearby. She told detectives how the two men looked the part of detectives, as they were smartly dressed, they showed really convincing police ID, and they spoke using the language she'd have expected from police officers. They also knew their names, and they were very polite but firm during the short exchange. George Barnsley believes that whoever had taken Andrew had probably been stalking the couple in the pub, so they were prepared to swoop when they arrived home. He added, They obviously knew where Andrew was, and knew he was returning to that house with Beverly. Beverly did not immediately run in and phone the police, and so she was obviously convinced that this was genuine. To do what they did at that time and that location took a fair bit of bravado. There was also a good chance of them being caught had Beverly realised they were bogus police officers. As true crime fans, you all know that the early days of any investigation are crucial. But after three days, the investigation appeared to be going nowhere, with a really poor response from the public and no clear leads at all. This was surprising, as, as I said at the very beginning, the area had been busy with supporters heading to watch the football and plenty of local activity. But nobody had seen anything, no one had seen the cars or anything to arouse suspicion. But someone must have seen something. So exactly a week later, the police arranged a sweep of the local area to speak to as many people as possible and to quiz them on events just a week previously. But nothing. And CCTV didn't produce any leads. The e-fits of the two suspects revealed nothing. And even a 15-second broadcast played to 50,000 football fans at Ibrox didn't provide the breakthrough that was desperately needed. And there was still no news from Andrew. George Barnsley said, Nothing came of any of the appeals. The problem was that Beverly Sinclair was the only witness. So you don't have anything that corroborates or substantiates what she is saying. That was the main issue for the inquiry team from day one. Maybe a nationwide appeal would provide more information. The next month saw Andrew's sister Linda and her younger brother Stuart make a TV appeal for information. And in June, it was over to that most favourite programme of the true crime enthusiast, Crime Watch. But nothing came from either appeal and a £5,000 Crime Stoppers reward produced nothing of any substance. Whereas Beverly hoped against hope that Andrew was still alive, detectives believed it was unlikely, and whoever had taken him had probably killed him by now. But while there was still no news, there was still some hope. Detectives began to look more into Andrew's life and background. If you Google his picture, he seems to fit the cliché, the clichéd image of the mild-mannered accountant. So just what was it in his background that could have led to him being abducted? Detectives certainly didn't think for a moment it was just a random abduction. 
Andrew lived with Beverly, a mother of two, in her house in Glasgow. At the time of the abduction, he was in the process of divorcing his wife, Eleanor. They'd been married for 25 years and had two grown-up children, a boy and a girl. He was an accountant who was self-employed at the time, working for small businesses. After splitting from Eleanor back in 2004, Andrew moved to Belgium, where he worked for a Glasgow mobile phone company, Diginet. He lived in the towns of Wellen and Hasselt, and also regularly travelled with his work to Holland, Saudi Arabia, Hong Kong and Dubai. While living in Belgium, he enjoyed a 10-month relationship with a former model and country and western singer. But by April 2005, the relationship had run its course, and he returned to Scotland and did no more work for Diginet. He cut all his ties with the organisation. He began a relationship with Beverly shortly afterwards. Beverly's policeman husband had died, and the two had known each other for many years, almost 10 years, through their shared love of walking the Scottish hills. At this early stage in the investigation, detectives focused on his alleged involvement in a 500 million VAT fraud. It transpired he'd been interviewed twice in the last six months by our friends at HM Revenue and Customs about his work for Glasgow mobile phone company Diginet. The fraud was what is known as a carousel fraud, if you've come across this before. It's where goods are continuously imported and exported, attracting multiple VAT rebates, a scheme that benefits from very good accountants. In the days leading up to his abduction, he told close pals he feared for his life, saying, I think I could be in trouble. I'm in too deep and know too much. Two of his best friends came forward to detectives to say that they believed he'd become caught up in money laundering for organised crime figures. Detectives headed over to Belgium for several days to speak to Andrew's ex-girlfriend and other friends Andrew had made there. On this jolly, they also visited pubs he frequented and spoke to staff and customers, but they didn't find anything that appeared to be significant. Separate inquiries by the Belgian police also drew a blank. Andrew had also been involved in a number of other firms that had gone bust, including a sauna and massage parlour. <laughs> a worrying moment there, but I checked. This business was near Glasgow Sheriff Court and not in the home of the sauna, Rochdale. Detective George Barnsley said, At first we had no intelligence that Andrew Ramsey was involved in any criminality. It was only after we were contacted by HMRC that we realised that Andrew was not quite the person we thought he was. He'd obviously done something fairly significant to end up being abducted. Another early line of inquiry was that Andrew had faked his own disappearance as it was the only way he could see to extricate himself from the situation he found himself in. And this was backed up, it seemed, by a couple of pieces of information. Just a few days before he disappeared, he tried to secure a £150,000 loan by attempting to remortgage Beverly's home without telling her. Andrew had also recently sent an email to his ex-girlfriend he lived with when he was in Belgium. It read, I'm going abroad and won't be able to speak to you for a few months. George Barnsley said, In this type of inquiry, you keep all your options open. 
Had Andrew Ramsey had enough and decided he was disappearing? Had he maybe realised there were people on his tail and it was time to make himself scarce? Had he maybe even planned this with Beverly, aiming to meet her again at a later phase? Detectives didn't think so, but in the absence of any breakthrough at all, every possibility remained on the table. And then on the 5th of April 2007, Beverly received the call she'd been dreading. Andrew's skull was found in a fishing net by a fisherman who'd been trawling the Firth of Clyde. It was thought that the skull was dropped near Little Cumbrae, which is a small island just off the west coast of Scotland near Largs. It's around 35 miles from Glasgow and would take about 90 minutes to drive there from the city. This discovery prompted Andrew's former Belgian girlfriend to tell the media how she'd been to a psychic nearby a month before his body was found and was told his body's in a very bad state and he is dead. He fell real deep. But the discovery of his skull didn't appear to give up any more leads. In a 2008 interview, police confirmed that extensive underwater searches using sonar equipment had taken place out where the skull was located. And the marine geophysicist who led this work was interviewed and said, Everything suggested there wasn't a huge amount of sediment movement, making it unlikely a body would have moved far. It's a really difficult case, but I found that the flat seabed in that area meant it was worth continuing because targets would stand out sufficiently well on the sonar. And in the same interview, detectives told more clearly what they thought was the motive for Andrew's murder. This was as a result of telling his kidnappers or their associates what he had discussed with police in relation to the fraud inquiry he had twice been questioned about. The lead investigator explained how Andrew could have been in a no-win situation with his abductors if he was questioned about his involvement in the carousel fraud investigation. He said, There is nothing else contained in our investigation to suggest any other reason than the VAT investigation that somebody would have an issue with Andrew Ramsey. This kind of fraud is organised crime. There was a 13 and a half month gap when we didn't have a single sighting, his bank accounts weren't touched and he wasn't in contact with anybody before his skull was found. But no other body parts were found despite a lot of trawling and his skull was fully intact and there was no evidence that any violent crime had even been committed. Detectives explored the possibility that Andrew's body may have been protected by material or weighed down to prevent it washing ashore. This suggests extensive and thorough preparation, which again points to organised crime, not amateurs. It was a long shot, but detectives appealed again. This time for anyone who saw a boat being used in the Firth of Clyde in unusual or suspicious circumstances around the period when Andrew went missing. But just like all the other appeals, nobody came forward to offer any information. But then just under a year later, two arrests were made in connection with the case. In November 2008, 46-year-old Derek Menzies was arrested, along with 44-year-old Ian Miller. At the time, Menzies was head of security for G1, 
Glasgow's biggest pub and club chain, and Miller was a wealthy businessman. Both men were questioned and released 12 hours after they were taken into custody, with both men claiming to have never met or contacted Andrew and denied any involvement in his disappearance and death. At about the same time, a £40,000 motorboat, believed to have been used in Andrew's disappearance, was seized from Kit Marina in Inverkip, Renfrewshire, and subjected to detailed forensic examinations. But no evidence was found, and the boat was returned to its owner, who was never a suspect in this case. But by October 2011, there had been no more progress, with the Crown Office still to receive an official police report on the two suspects. In an interview, a clearly frustrated Ian Miller said, I've been in limbo for the last three years. No one can tell me why I was a suspect in this man's murder. I was arrested in the morning and then dumped back on the street in the evening without any money after being charged. I've heard nothing since then. And Beverly, the only witness to the abduction of Andrew, died of natural causes on April the 27th, 2015 and was laid to rest two weeks later. She never spoke to the media about the events surrounding Andrew's disappearance. After her death, Andrew's sister Linda said she felt that Beverly was their last hope of being able to find justice for her brother. She said, It's awful not knowing what happened to him, but there's nothing to be done now. There's no point in making another appeal. What would that achieve? His partner has died and she was the only witness. George Barnsley retired from the police force in 2010. He was a superintendent by then and later told how the disappearance of Andrew Ramsey was the only major crime he worked on that was unsolved. He said, It was one of the most difficult and unusual crimes that I ever investigated. Had Andrew just decided to disappear into the darkness, or had he been abducted? There were so many questions unanswered at the time, and sadly, there appears to be very few answers, even now. And this is where we are, as I record, in June 2022. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Just what happened to Andrew? There are, as you can imagine, lots of unsubstantiated rumours about what happened. Was he taken by people involved with the fraud that we discussed? Many think so, and that he was then killed to show what would happen to people who talked. But surely to send that sort of signal, it has to be made even clearer just what had happened to him to put other people off. Or maybe it was made clear to the right people, we'll never know. The fact he tried to remortgage Beverly's house before his death and contacted his ex and contacted his ex girlfriend to say he'd be away for a few months, suggests he was either trying to raise cash to escape the situation, or he was in big financial difficulty. Did he have some sort of habit, some vice, that led to him owing money to the wrong people, who then took their revenge? Or would they do that when they wanted money, as surely he would be more useful to them alive, so he could pay them back? Or did he try to arrange his own disappearance and then something went wrong? And that's assuming it was murder. The damage to his skull, there was no damage, it was intact. So did he fake his own disappearance 
and then either take his own life or was murdered afterwards. So many theories, so many possibilities. But let's just look at the facts. An investigation that has spanned Wales, Belgium, Northern Ireland, Scotland and England. Over 300 statements taken from over a 1,000 people and numerous appeals with no leads. Even on Crime Watch, there was nothing, literally nothing, not one call came into the studio. And the biggest mystery for me, why on that busy street did nobody see anything? Only Beverly, and she wasn't talking publicly. So is Andrew's sister, Linda Wright. With Beverly's death, will the disappearance of Andrew Ramsey remain a mystery? The case is still open, and recently, the lead detective said, The murder of Andrew Ramsey is regularly reviewed and under continued scrutiny. This process focuses upon identifying new opportunities from advances in forensic science and investigative techniques. All new opportunities that come to light are fully investigated, and we would welcome any information that could assist our investigation. Details can be passed to Police Scotland on 101 or Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 where anonymity can be maintained. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group where over 80,000 of us talk true crime 24-7. Just head to Facebook and search, you guessed it, UK True Crime. And to support the show, join my community at patreon.com slash truecrime. It's the place to be for bonus episodes and other exclusive content, including the chance to bag a free signed copy of my book about serial killer Angus Sinclair if you join on an annual package from as little as £17 a year. Just head along to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. And don't forget to buy the tickets to see me, Mike and Paul in Glasgow in the end of this month, or London in August, or both. So that's all for me for another week. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to this episode. And please join me again next Tuesday for another story from the UK's 37th most popular UK true crime podcast. So until next week, despite all the others, trust me, I know, please do stay classy. Cheerio for now.